0: No matter what you do in life, the key to achieving success and happiness is passion. As Yale's new Associate Director of Athletics for Development, Eric Silikowski's success can be drilled down to one thing, passion for college athletics. Hi, I'm Josh Van Kampen. Today's episode, learn how Eric's journey from a Division III baseball player has led him to becoming one of the highest performing leaders in college athletics. Discover what his first 90 days in the sports industry looked like. His journey as a leader, the importance of flexibility, and what the biggest challenge facing him and his team in the next 12 months at Yale. Podcast starts now. Thanks for joining me on today's podcast, Eric.
1: Yeah, thank you, Josh. It's uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation for quite some time.
0: As, as am I, because I guess when we first had a chat, you were working for Air Force, and it was such a good conversation, as I guess a lot of conversations I have with people in college athletics I wish I could record this there was so much good content so I'm glad we can uh, revisit it but uh, for those that don't know Eric Silikowski is the associate director of athletics for development at Yale University and Eric can you just give us a bit of an oversight into what a typical day looks like for you there at Yale
1: yeah it's uh it's different every day right and that's the beautiful thing about college athletics we have 35 programs which is not the norm across the landscape. Normally you're looking around 17 to 19, uh, sport programs, but we have everything from ice hockey to squash to fencing. And, you know, when I was at air force, we had 27 and I thought I touched them all, but lo lo and behold, um, I'm learning about squash and, and a few other sports. So it's, it's pretty incredible, but I oversee the fundraising, um, for all of our programs and from the annual fund day to day operational funding to, major gifts and capital campaigns and capital projects like we're doing with our football and track and field field house, uh, the Yale golf course restoration that we expect to be a top 100 golf course in the country or sorry, in the in the world, uh, top 20 in the country. Um, so I get to do some pretty cool things on a day to day basis. And then we we handle all the alumni engagement for our alumni, our student athlete alumni. Um, and so there's, as you can imagine, with all the alumni with 35 programs, um, we we have a lot um so that's what we we manage kind of on a day-to-day basis i overall uh, i also oversee the external partnerships and the corp- or the corporate partnerships um which is a, another piece of my job and and something that we're trying to grow here so that's been really fun kind of getting engaged with the community
0: so no day is ever the same is
1: it never not one day is the same but it's it's a, it's a beautiful thing it really is and uh it's something that you can expect in college athletics but Um, You really, you really got to be passionate about it and really got to love it because you I'm a type A person, Josh. So (laughs) (laughs) I like to plan everything out. I'm very I try to be very efficient. um,
0: But this, uh, this industry will keep you on your toes. Yeah, I'm a bit of a planner myself and yeah, I do, do sometimes get a little bit frazzled at times and oh, this hasn't really gone to plan or you've changed the date and time on me. What's going on here? But just want to touch on there. We, you see to manage the, the alumni engagement there for, I guess, your former student athletes. When do you start the pipeline of engaging, uh, your alumni? Is it when they're a student? Is it even before they become a student at Yale?
1: Well, it depends. It kind of depends everywhere. Uh, it depends. It's kind of different everywhere. When it, when it comes to, Yale, we do a very good job from uh, while they're on campus and really keeping them uh, kind of creating a network uh, between our student athletes and our alumni. Um, all programs are different they our alumni really uh, help lead that effort of the networking piece, but it also helps our student athletes understand the importance of of staying connected um, and really what our alumni do for them right to to help them compete at the highest levels. Um, so it really does happen while they, as soon as they step up, step on campus throughout their four years. And then it's a very simplistic transition or it should be. Um, and we hope it to be when they leave so that they can stay involved. Um, but there's so many events like tomorrow I'm doing, it's a great example. Um, we have one of the best, uh, crew programs in the country. Um, and it's very historic. Um, you know, they, They consider it a piece of the birthplace of college athletics and and crew with Yale. Um, But we have about 250 individuals that are alumni coming back to New York City uh, to the Yale Club of New York. And we include all of the seniors. Um, So all the seniors come back. The alumni get together, all the coaches, uh, they celebrate, they get ready for the season ahead. Uh, But they also have an opportunity during, you know, like a cocktail hour. We don't allow them to drink while they're while they're hanging out with everybody. But you can edit that if you want. But (laughs) they uh, they spend time for that hour. It's it's very valuable to our student athletes and they love it because they also understand they're getting one of the best educations in the world. um, But it can only take you so far if you don't do the work and getting to know the right people. Um, And our alumni are so, so good um about taking care of their own and making sure that they're successful and giving them every opportunity uh to to take the next step in their career. So all of that revolves around alumni engagement. Like I said, our alumni do a great job and our student athletes love it.
0: Sounds like the alumni like to provide a hand up rather than a than a handout. But I want to talk about the tradition. How important is tradition there at Yale? Because it seems like you could be I guess the potential gatekeepers of it for Yale athletics.
1: Oh, it's everything. So, and that's one of the, that's one of the, the challenges of coming in here because Yale is a very, very historic and, and the uh, institution with so much history, with so much tradition. Um, and our alumni like to keep that alive from anything going on on campus. Like they like to keep things at Yale. People love to come back to Yale. It's beautiful. There's so many good memories and it also afforded them a lot in life, which they're very appreciative of. Um, and you don't get to hear that at every college and, and university. There's not always that sincere appreciation, but I can guarantee you at Yale, um, there is just that. It's a little bit different from Air Force. They'll, they, I've heard stories of, of uh, Air Force grads. They, they recognize the power that that education and that, uh, that military training and everything that was involved with it. They'll recognize that 5, 10, 15 years down the road because of all that they went through, uh, throughout their four years. But when it comes to Yale, it's like from the moment you step up on campus, having the opportunity to to come here, but then also as you leave and what you remember of the place, I mean, it's pretty incredible to hear the stories. Um, but we try to keep those traditions alive. We keep our alumni very engaged, uh, from my perspective, because we rely heavily on them to understand what do you want to do? What do you what what will attract you to come back to campus? What will attract our student athletes to make sure that they stay engaged with life after Yale. And um, I don't have all the answers. I didn't go to Yale. I, did, I, I certainly didn't go to Air Force. I mean, either of these places I could have never imagined to, uh, to be a part of as a student. So if I'm going to do it right, I'm going to listen to the people that know best. Um, and there's ways that um, we could tweak things and make things a little bit more efficient, a little bit um, more enhanced um, with certain practices but just from a development perspective and an engagement perspective. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what our alumni want. And we're going to listen to them.
0: Is that an advantage for you having not gone to Yale? So you can kind of have, look at it, I guess, not through rose colored glasses. Y- yes and no. I think
1: uh, I think being an alumni of an institution and working there certainly has its perks. Um, but from my perspective, I really I do see it as an advantage. I take my experience and um from a place like Air Force with 27 sport programs. And um to me, I see that as as a much simpler transition to a place like Yale um, with how much we have going on here in athletics, um, compared to somebody coming from 15 programs. Um, and being able to manage all those things and, and making sure that we have an efficient process. When it comes to the engagement piece, it's it's to me, it's as simple as uh, listening and asking as many questions as possible and coming into a new place and knowing that I don't have all the answers, but I need to find the people that will have them. Um, because a lot of people, a lot of alumni are going to come to me for things and I need to make sure I'm connected to, with the right ones. And that's what like a lot of your, uh, a lot of your first 60 to 90 days revolves around. It's, it's learning the culture, learning the history, learning the tradition, getting on campus and, and seeing what it's all about, going to the different buildings, uh, going to different events outside of athletics and understanding what the university is all about. Um, and don't get me wrong, this is, this is not an easy task to do, right, for anybody, because it's a lot to learn, a lot to get used to. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm going to be a steward of this university, just like an alumni is. I'm going to be very proud of where I work because I wouldn't have come here otherwise. Um, but uh, but I want to make sure that uh, I listen as much as possible. And I don't act like I know what I'm like, like I like I am a Yaley, like I am an Eli. It's not uh it's not something that I did. So I need to learn and I need to listen as much as possible.
0: So let's uh, go back to the study career. Cause as we know, the sports industry is highly competitive and building your career, you get that dream job and sports can take years of hard work and dedication to get into that position to reach your goals. Was working in sport always a goal of yours? Because you studied, did an undergrad in political science and history. Was sport always the dream? Uh, yeah, to an
1: extent. Um, because what I wanted to do originally, um, my growing up, my, uncle was kind of my, uh, he, he was the guy that I looked up to and he was a, he's a great attorney in the Northeast. Um, but I loved sports and I was like, you know what? I could talk a lot. I loved to debate and argue with people. Um, growing up, I always thought I was right with everything. And I was just like, you know what? I can be an attorney too, or a sport agent, but I wanted to be in sport law. And, um, so I took some of those classes and I loved political science. I loved history, um, going throughout college. Um, but I knew it wasn't everything, right. It wasn't, it wasn't, it it wasn't a sincere passion of mine when I was taking some of those classes that, you know, I did just love the basics of debating with people and, but I, I didn't want to do it for a job. Right. So, um, when I was going through college and playing baseball, I got to see, and it was division three. So it was a totally different atmosphere, but I got to see firsthand some of the administrators, um, Actually, one who just recently passed, Len Schuler from Newman University, was a softball coach there. Everybody loved him, Josh. Like, he was an amazing human being, and he was always there for the student-athletes. He helped with everything you could ever imagine and just salt-of-the-earth type person. Um, and I saw him as an individual who just, who really cared and loved what he did. And he did it for so many years in one place. And I said, you know what? That's something that I'd really like to explore and um and lo and behold i go to saint john's and i get into their sport management program uh and you know the first thing that uh my professor asked me i'll never forget he asked the whole class he said who here wants to be the general manager of the new york yankees and everybody raised their hand and he goes well none of he's like maybe one of you will get that and you're gonna have to find other options and i said well i'd love to do that but i want to be in college athletics i want to be an athletic director um and To get to that point, um, I just I started studying it. I started listening podcasts, right? Like uh, reading books, reading anything that I could about it, and I became uh, obsessed. And like, as a good word, a good way to put it, in the fact that I wanted to lead a Division One college uh, uh, athletic institution, and it was so important for me to do that that I just it's what I revolved my life around, and I wasn't going to. Um, I wasn't going to stop until I got there. Now, sport management from a degree perspective, it doesn't teach you everything about college athletics. Mm. Um, But from a management perspective uh, and some of the the basic knowledge that you need, it was very important. But I knew I had to get the experience first and foremost. And while I was at St. John's, I was afforded the opportunity to be an intern at Monmouth University, which led to my first job in college athletics um, just after um, I got into professional sports. Um, So that was a uh, that's kind of how I got to that point. It wasn't so much of an epiphany, but it was a, I thought I wanted to do this, but after seeing what somebody like Coach Schuler did, um, the, it it really kind of opened my eyes and I said, but I want to do this at the highest level possible.
0: So what did the first 90 days of working in sport look like for you then?
1: Oh, so this is where I met our friend Banuk um, in, in <laughs> sales at, uh, at monumental sports and what a cool opportunity and what an unbelievable experience. I tell everybody the same thing. And because I have these conversations with those that are coming up in the industry, my mentors, and I always go back to my time in monumental sports, because what an opportunity to just get on the phone, smile and dial and learn the, you know, learn how much you're going to hear. No, um, and just get out of your comfort zone. I was, you know, Banook was on the inside sales team, uh, selling a lot of, uh, wizards tickets. I was a regional manager for, uh, the WNBA with the Mystics. This was like pre-Deladon. This was, you know, pre-peak, uh, Mystics and they were a 500, uh, ball club. They were okay. We were getting like three to 5,000 people into the game and I was trying to sell season tickets. I called everybody and anybody. So it was like the first 90 days was very much all I was trying to do was grind it out and prove myself that I could do the work. And I wasn't even worried about selling anything, even though like you're you're working for pennies at that point, right? Um, but I wanted to get out of my comfort zone and I wanted to prove to everybody there that I was the hardest working per- person in the room. And you were making 120, 130, 140 calls a day just to get it done, going in early, staying late. Um, and one of the coolest things that happened to me, Josh, and one thing that I'm very proud of is I got the 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 it was like the mystic sales hustler award where I made 3000 calls or had 3000 interactions within my first like four months there. And wow. um and like I said, I did not care about making it making money. It was I wanted to to prove to these individuals that they made the right choice in hiring me. But I didn't care what I was selling. I was just going to I was just going to do everything possible. And I had a ball doing it. I spent so much time understanding the culture of pro sports. It's so much fun. There's so much high energy. I mean, you're really riding the highs and the lows of a season. Right. Um, And you're I'm surrounded by people who are working with the Wizards and the Capitals, people who've been selling tickets for years, picking their brains. Um, But I knew I wasn't going to do it forever. I did it for nine months. And. I, I did it specifically, um, one, because my girlfriend, who is now my wife, um, was down in D.C. and I wanted to find a job to stay close to her. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted to be specific in the fact that um, I really wanted to get into a sales role because eventually in college athletics, I knew I needed that experience to get onto the mm-hmm. external side. So um, 90 days was really just, it was calls. It was calls, games, early mornings, late nights, doing everything that I could. And I enjoyed the heck out of it.
0: Could you look back and remember your first phone call and what it was like? Were there any nerves or you just didn't yeah. care? <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. It was Matthew Gwartz was my, uh, was my direct report at that time, uh, director of ticket sales and, uh, for the, for the wizards. And I, it was the first day and I didn't know what to expect. I thought I was going to go through some kind of orientation or, or something like that. And he's been in tickets for years and. He sits me down in his office and he goes, how you doing? I go, I'm good. Uh, how are you? He was like, I'm, I'm great, you know, and he was like, pick up the phone. And I said, what? And he was just like, yeah, pick up the phone. I said, okay. And he goes, dial this number. And I said, all right. And he goes, sell a ticket. And uh, I looked at him. He was like, I'm not kidding. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I still, I still use it to this day with, uh, with entry level staff members because you, The quicker you get out of your bubble and out of your comfort zone, the easier it's going to be. And I never I didn't understand it that day. But after a while, I understood he was just trying to push me. And it was actually a really simple approach to saying, spread your wings and fly, buddy. Just get out there, start making phone calls. Um, And that person picked up the phone. I had no idea what to say, Josh. I <laughs> And I could talk a lot. So. Uh, but when, it when it came to this person, I froze, uh, I, you know, they gave me, he gave me a little script and I was by the book. Um, but one of the coolest experiences I learned though, was once I got out of my comfort zone, I can't stand scripts. Um, I get to know the product. I get to become passionate about it. Um, I take, uh, I take opportunities where I am passionate about the product that I'm selling, no matter what it is. And, um, I, I stay off script. I've become human and I build that relationship and that trust. And although I didn't sell a ton of tickets, I had some great phone conversations throughout those nine months that I was, that I was making all those phone calls. And, but that was the first one. And I, I will sincerely never forget. I can, I can visualize him with his feet up on his desk, just watching me trying not to laugh.
0: <laughs> was that, was that the biggest challenge you faced? Was that day one or was there any other challenges that you faced through that nine months?
1: Yeah, I would I would say that was one of the biggest challenges because day after day it was really the same thing. And I I would say within 3 to 4 months you just get you get really beat up by the fact that all you hear is no because you're constantly trying to refine your approach uh to selling a ticket, right? And everybody's different. There is no to me there is no script in selling tickets in fundraising, marketing anything that you do, it's you're going to do it your way and you should find the best way to do it that works for you. And when it came to that, I, I had to realize, like, I had to get rid of the scripts. I had to stop overthinking this uh, and I had to just start enjoying it. Right. Because this is what I was doing. I chose to do this. I chose to be here every day and let's make the best of it. So it was there was also another challenge within three to four months where I was just I was feeling beat down because my numbers weren't rising. My calls were going up. And my interactions were going up, the time spent on the phone, the emails that were going out. But when it came to when it came to uh, the actual commission that you're trying to earn, there was there wasn't anything there. And I wasn't Mm. I wasn't being seen on the TVs where all the rankings were of that month and and all that. And even when I had a good month, it was also even worse because the first day of every month it goes back down to zero. (laughs) So I'm like people who did that for years. I mean, I respect the heck out of them because I have no idea how they do it. You 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 do all this work, you earn all this money, and then right back down to zero that next month. So um, there, were, there was a few challenges, but I'd say it was pretty steady as to uh, trying to figure out how to overcome that one, which was just getting better at your job and finding a way to do it your own way. Were there any
0: important skills that you developed in that role that you still use today?
1: Oh, my goodness, confidence. Uh, you have to, you have to find confidence in yourself, uh, to go through a day to day cold calling, just, you know, sending those emails. You, you have to understand that, you know, you're going to have your good days and your bad days. Uh, Um, I developed, uh, a little bit more of a, you know, what I like to call the, and what I refer to from the John Gordon books, the no complaint rule. Right. Um, If you sit there and and you're negative about your job, you're never going to be successful. Some people are Mm -hmm. very lucky in the fact they they may not like their job, but they're very good at it, right? But when it comes to uh, cold calling and sales and especially fundraising, you can't fake it because you're developing true relationships and building Mm -hmm. trust with people, whether it's within a two-minute phone call or a two-year relationship with an alumni. And you can't you you can never let those poor emotions come out in those conversations. Um And we all, like I said, have our bad days. We have our hiccups. But I learned a lot to have confidence in myself, but also learn how to self-reflect a lot and have that self-awareness, more so emotional intelligence than anything else. Um, those things were really important to me being young in my career so that I can continue to carry them and enhance on those on those attributes for the rest of my career, which is helping me today. Um, And also helping others. So I would say some of those, they're not the most basic skills, uh, but I had to learn them and recognize some of those things very quickly, or else I wouldn't enjoy what I do. And I probably wouldn't be sitting here today.
0: Now, could be a skill attribute being flexible. You've worked in a variety of roles across the country. How important is it not only be flexible when career opportunities present itself, but having that support system with consistent open dialogue? And you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, so...
1: (laughs) Um, when it comes to being flexible, it's everything in college athletics. There's 360 plus division one athletic departments, which seems like a lot of opportunity, but there's not a lot of upward mobility in a lot of places that you go. And if you want to continue to grow in your career more often than not, you got to relocate. So there I was after DC, uh, I moved up to New Jersey. My girlfriend came back with me now, my wife. We're in New Jersey at Monmouth University. I have a great opportunity 20 minutes from home where I grew up. My mother got her master's degree there. My brother got his bachelor's degree there. Um, I went to basketball camps there when I was young. Uh, I It was everything that I knew. I watched them go to the NCAA tournament and it was, um, you know, it, it, it almost seemed like a dream job scenario. But then I also realized that people stay there forever and it's a beautiful pl- place to to work, to live, uh, to, uh, raise a family. I mean, it's everything, but it, it wasn't going to help me become an AD at a certain point, because in order to become an athletic director, I needed more experience, more opportunities, and I wasn't going to be able to grow there. And I respect anybody. And I appreciate the fact if they find a place that they love and they want to be there forever, good and good on you. Um, it's just my own, I have a different, competitive drive in myself that this is my goal and I'm going to reach it. And the beautiful thing about, about my life is I do have that support system, right? And you never know how it's going to go because when you sit there and you tell your girlfriend at the time, uh, who you've known your entire life, including your family, who has been there for everything for you. Um, and you tell them you're about to move to Arkansas, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, when you grew up on the beach, I'm a surfer. I, You know, I love the outdoors. I I was I I was all about the East Coast and Northeast. It's our comfort zone. We grew up in a one square mile town with one traffic light. Um, All of our friends and our family are still there um, and have great opportunities and and lives ahead of them. Uh, But I was like, this is an industry where I can't just move to Manhattan, where there's a million opportunities. I have to move across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, I had Chase Conk, who was the athletic director at the time, hired a 27-year-old kid as an associate athletic director to oversee his external operation. And then within a year and a half, moved me up to the deputy athletic director role where I was overseeing sports. I was, in a sense, his right-hand man. Um, he trusted me with the operation, uh, along with our other deputy AD, Molly Kastner, who's still with him to this day. Um, it's pretty. It was pretty incredible the opportunity that was in front of us in Arkansas and having no idea how much of an impact it would be on our lives. And I am thankful and grateful every single day that Arkansas led to an engagement with uh, my now wife. And now and then soon after that, it was a few years. My AD at that time left for Texas. We did not go uh, we did not go down south, but we decided What's the next best opportunity? Well, it was either Colorado or finding an opportunity to the Northeast because it was a place that once you, once you get married, right? And, um, you go through those, those conversations, it's like, what's best for us? Um, and at that point, it was, well, the Air Force Academy is a great opportunity. Nathan Pine is one of the best fundraisers that college athletics has ever seen. And he's just a great human being. And to be able to work under him and his department would be a dream. And so lo and behold, I, I interview for that job. I get it. My wife gets a job out there. It works out perfectly. It's an amazing opportunity where I get to work at a service Academy. Um, I get to run my own shop, uh, at the group of five level in the mountain West. It was, it truly was a dream. And then, you know, at some point the goal was not just to become an athletic director, but to get my wife and I back to the Northeast and we weren't leaving air force for just anything. It had to be a pretty special opportunity. And to, uh, Come to a place like Yale with the history and tradition that it has um, and the opportunities that are in front of us. And not only that, but to work for, you know, uh, a trailblazer herself and Vicki Chun is is pretty amazing. And then our executive leadership with Mary Bordeaux and, of course, Anne-Marie Guglieri, who's our COO. I mean, we got a we have a powerhouse of leadership. And then my own director, poor Jay Judge, who's who came in a month after me, has been incredible. And I get to work for the best people. and you know, you talk about flexibility. Um, I've never thought twice about location. I tell everybody the same thing. You cannot worry about it. If you want to be successful in college mm-hmm. athletics, you can get lucky throughout your career and stay in the same place. Um, but you can't worry about it if there's no opportunities around you. I'm lucky that I have and grateful that I have a support system and my wife, she's absolutely incredible. She understands college athletics more than most because she's been through all the ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Um, but my family has always stayed in New Jersey and they they were the number one fan of the Little Rock Trojans. They they were the number one fans of Air Force Falcons. And now they're the number one fans of the Yale Bulldogs. And uh, that's one of the coolest things, Josh, that I get to experience is I get to experience it with my family. I had my sister, my twin sister, with her daughter um, and her husband up here for a football game. They've never got to see me. They've never had the opportunity, opportunity to see me work. Um, so that was very special for me. So. Um, to be able to have, uh, my wife as my support system move across the country, just like that. That's, that's uncanny. Right. And to have, uh, to be that lucky as an individual to have these people surrounding you, um, is pretty incredible. And not only that, I talked about the people that I've worked for and worked with, I mean, that's your support system too. And they've been there for everything. And, um, I'm very specific and intentional with the places that I go. And my number one rule is to follow great leaders. That's why location money, All of that doesn't matter. It's it's about the people that you work with and work for and that invest in you. And if I if I have the opportunity to work for for people that are as special as as Chase Conk and Napine and Vicky Chun and all those that are part of their staff. um, I'm a I'm a pretty lucky guy and I've been pretty lucky to to hit all these spots um, over the past eight, nine years at this point.
0: Did you have any doubts ever creep in throughout your journey, be it being in sales, working your way through college athletics, even during your time, maybe even at St. John's, were there any doubts that you think maybe this career might not happen?
1: Yeah, to an extent, because, um, you know, there's always times, I don't think it's, it's that I wouldn't get into it because I always believed that I would. Uh It was that, can I continue to grow at the pace that I'm at? And, what's important for, for me when that, when, when you think about that is that I have a lot of colleagues that have gone from one place to the next every year and that's okay for some people to do that. But at some point, you know, I'm a firm believer that when I become an athletic director and if I'm lucky to get to that point, right, because there's only so many opportunities, um, you get to that point, you, I want to be prepared. And you know, you're not you can't step into a role, a leadership role and know everything or be ready for everything. But um, I want to be able to touch as many as as many uh, pieces of an athletic department as I can before I get there. So I have a pretty good understanding of taking over a department and sustaining its success and creating more. Right. And for me to do that, I have to be at a place for a certain amount of time and I need to have the challenges. I need to overcome them with that adversity. And I need to be able to create my own success with my team and be able to prove myself that I can do these things well and see the fruits of our labor, mm-hmm. right? I want to be able to hire the right people, create a, a well-rounded culture building, positive staff that works their tails off. And that that stuff's very important to me. And if if I don't allow myself the time to do that, uh, then to me, I'm not going to be prepared someday. And I mean, that also answers the question for myself as far as if if I don't do those things, I don't feel like I may not have the next opportunity to grow because you do find those times where you're at a place like Little Rock for three years. My AD left and I sat there and I thought to myself, well, what's next? And I was at an FCS. Well, I was at a one triple A school. In the Sun Belt, which is Group of Five, but we didn't have football, so I was like, "Am I going to be able to get a football job?" And you know, some of those are are very difficult to get. I was a deputy athletic director at a uh, at a Division one school at the age of twenty eight years, twenty nine years old, and I said, "Who is somebody going to hire a young guy in in a, at a higher level? You know, maybe with lesser of a title, but are they going to trust me like?" Chase Conk trusted me, right? Mm. Um, are they going to allow me to prove myself? And there was opportunities that I I was in dire need of that I didn't get. And at times it gets discouraging. But then at the end of the day, Josh, you find that where you end up is exactly where you should be. And Air mm. Force was exactly that after Little Rock. Little Rock was exactly that after Monmouth and Yale is exactly that after Air Force
0: it's pretty clear you have a growth mindset. Is that something you've always had or is that something that has, I guess, grown through over the years?
1: I feel like my mindset has changed since I was younger. Uh, It was very much a, let me prove people wrong Mm -hmm. uh, because I, I did not come from humble beginnings or, you know, I was, uh, I had a mother who took care of her four kids and, Um, she was a a widow by the time I was, by the time I was 13 years old and she grinded out every second of her life to make sure that she took care of all of us. And, you know, but we had everything that we needed. She made sure that I could go play college baseball and that I didn't have to work so much while I was doing it. And I can get a proper education and, you know, and make sure that I take the next step in my life and that I was prepared for life really without her, right. Mm -hmm. To become an adult. Um, but for me, you know, growing up, I was, uh, I I think it was very important for me to understand uh, as I got older that I was trying to prove people wrong rather than trying to take care of things myself and, and really have that growth mindset. It wasn't until I got to like year two, I guess, in Monmouth, where I said to myself, I'm, I'm not going to be anything that I want to be unless I really start thinking differently and thinking Mm -hmm. bigger. Uh, The bigger I thought, the easier my next steps got, right? Because I was very intentional with where I wanted to go. I wanted to understand from other people. That's where I started to really create a network. I wanted to understand from my mentors and my network, how I can get to certain places without job skipping, right. And learning as much as humanly possible. And I relied heavily on those people. I had to realize that you can't, you're not going to get anywhere and you're not going to be successful without help. It's not possible to me. And if, if somebody wants to try to tell me otherwise by all means, but you're not going to make me a believer. And uh At the end of the day, I had to listen to people. I had to stop listening so much uh to myself as somebody who thought I could do it all on my own and realize that the help that people are providing me is something that they're doing wholeheartedly, and they got to a place where I want to get to someday so i I should really start growing like they did, but also find it you know take my own path that way. I don't have mm-hmm. to do everything. You know the way that Nate Pine did. I don't have to do everything the way Chase Conk did it. I don't have to do everything the way Vicky Chun did it. But my growth mindset now is, I'm going to work for the for the best leaders I possibly can, and I'm going to take the pieces of them that have made them so successful, and I'm going to put it into myself. And and I'm going to take some things of my own, and I'm going to stay true to myself as well. And hopefully that those, all those things culminate in the future and they make me a very, very successful, well-prepared leader in college athletics.
0: It's clear that you're yeah, creating your own path because it's very easy for everybody to, you know, I guess, well, the grass is always greener sometimes when you look at someone else's career, go, Oh, I should be doing X, Y, Z and seeing them grow. But at the end of the day, you are you and uh, you got to follow your own path. No, absolutely. It's, you know, and I try to tell a lot of, Uh,
1: I say young people and I'm not, I'm not old by any means, but I feel like I've been in the industry for a while now, but a lot of those that are coming in into college athletics, you know, it's great to go to the conventions and, and, you know, network with as many people Mm -hmm. as possible. But for me, it's about being specific and intentional on who you speak with and who genuinely cares about your growth, because those people will also help you figure it out for yourself, ask you the right questions so that you're thinking for yourself not so much the the coach speak as to this is how I did it from a high level view. It's breaking things down and helping you truly think and dig deep and say, how is this going to work for me? How am I going to do it? Because the way that I think is not the same way that Chase Conk thinks. But if I can pull some pieces from him and wrap my mind around it, maybe there's a way that I can do it my way. Right. That's more comfortable for me. That's that's more second nature. And if if I can do that, I feel like I'll be a lot more successful because I'll be without, you know, you want to be outside your comfort zone because it challenges you. But when you're making hard decisions and you're going through challenges, uh, you need to you need to start to become comfortable with that. And you're not going to be able to get through adversity unless you, you know, you stick to who you are. And, you know, like I said, you pull those pieces of pieces of advice, you pull those things From all around you that you've learned from from very successful individuals and you just make it your own. And that's why with young people, it's don't be afraid to be yourself. It's that's incredibly important. Don't lose who you are. Don't try to be who somebody don't try to be somebody else just because they got to a certain place. You can do that, too. Mm -hmm. You just you have to find your own way by using the information that they provide and staying true to who you are.
0: Now, I'd like to spend a little bit of time diving into your previous role at U.S. Air Force Academy. For those that don't know, it's one of five federal undergraduate academies that don't charge students for tuition, textbooks, uniforms, or room and board. Can you walk us through what your role was like there at the Air Force Command, the U.S. Air Force Academy, and what were the challenges you faced in that role? Yeah, um,
1: what a unique, special place it is you know, when I was, when I got into college athletics, I grew up going, you know, up the Hudson river with my father when I was young, going to Rutgers, uh, West point football games. And, you know, I, you don't understand the scope of it when you're that young, you just think it's really cool. It's a great crowd. Like I, I saw a turf field for the first time in my life over there. Um, and it was just a fun experience that I had as a kid. Um, and, but when I looked back on it, as I got into college athletics, I said, man, from everything that I remember, the one thing that I want to accomplish in my career as I'm going through my journey is I want to make sure that I, I make a stop at a service academy. And if I can get there, great. If not, that's OK, too. But if I have the opportunity, I need to take it because it's so unique and so different from the college athletic experience. But at the same time they're still trying to win championships. They're still mm-hmm. trying to be successful on the field. But what I, what I got to do on a daily basis is I got to help, you know, I, I oversaw the fundraising for 27 programs there and it was annual fund. It was major gifts. Uh, you know, we weren't a massive part of, of this, but we were a part of it that they're going through a big stadium renovation there at, at Falcon stadium. And it's going to be beautiful what Nate mm-hmm. Pine is putting together. But, Um, But I got to do all of the alumni engagement. I got to do all of the fundraising uh, from an athletic standpoint. And it was unbelievable because of the stories you heard, the history of the Air Force Academy and the reason why people give back. Right. And why they are passionate about Air Force and the service academy itself. Now, don't get me wrong. I thought when I was thinking service academy, I'd be at a Navy or West Point because it was on the East Coast. (laughs) But when I was younger, I actually watched more Air Force football. Than I did anything else, um, other than Syracuse, which was my team growing up. But um, I was enamored by it because it's so much more than the college, you know, the normal college student athlete. Mm-hmm. These these young people, their schedule is rigorous, and there was times where you learn that before a game day on Saturday that some of these some of our offensive linemen are in this squadron. And they have to wake up at 4.30 in the morning because their squadron leader just decided they needed to go for a march for five miles. And they had a game that day. And you know what? You don't blink an eye at it because that's what they chose to do. There is a roster of 225 men on the football program. There is a lot of attrition when it starts, when they go through basic training, um, and you understand why. But the fact that these young men and women get through four years of, of the highest education, the highest military training and prepare to be leaders of our armed forces and I get to work with them every day and I, I get to I get to raise funds to create a better experience for them throughout their four years that's one of the coolest things that you can ever imagine in college athletics um, and to be able to look back on that is pretty incredible that day-to-day was uh was pretty it it was fascinating to me because it is like anywhere else in college athletics where every day is different um but it was seeing flyovers it was seeing them march uh you know across the academy it's remembering that every time that you're driving to work you're going through the gates of a military base uh an installation um but there's such a beauty to it at the same time but if you ask a cadet right it's their four years, and they're their four years as hell, and I could never imagine that now you look at you look at it from the development and the fundraising side and working with Air Force grads. One of the biggest challenges there is understanding and not even understanding, but learning the Air Force academy. first thing Napine taught me when I got there he said. Learning the Air Force Academy and learning a service academy is going to take you every bit of 12 to 16 months. Now, he worked at West Point for a few years in development under Kevin Anderson while he was the AD there at West Point. Um, So he had a good feel for how service academies worked. But every single one is different and has their own feel and has their own history and tradition. Now, learning those things is not easy because you're not learning about athletics there. You know how the sports work, right? Some of those things, like it was the first time I was around a fencing program. and it was it was fascinating to learn. But when you get to a point where, you know, you're you're learning about basic training when they first get on, when, um, you know, it's it's parents weekend when you have 50,000 people showing up to a game tailgating and, you know, 40,000 people in the stands because their parents, it's their first time that they're seeing their cadet over the summer after all their training is pretty incredible uh, when they first get onto the academy and you learn everything that they have to go through because they are a they are coming in as somebody who is preparing for not the next four years, but the next 40 of their life. Um, And at the end of the day, what you're doing is special. And to learn the way of the academy and their day to day and how they go about their business and how they get through it. Talk about adversity. Those are the toughest young men and women that I ever got to see. And not only that, they're some of the smartest. So I always told every grad, I said, when I would introduce myself, I would say, I'm not here. Um, I- I'm not here to act like I know what I'm doing and to act like I, I know everything about Air Force because I don't. I could never, you know, I-, I, I never had the opportunity and I never would have as the, the, you know, the average student that I was to come to a service academy, but I'm here to learn. I'm here to listen and I, I want to know everything about it and just giving them all the time in the world to, to talk about their experience at the Air Force Academy it was pretty incredible from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s to the 90s. It's changed over the years. But one thing's for sure is that, I mean, what they do throughout that four years is one of the most rigorous tests of your life. And it's, um, it's pretty amazing just to be somebody who's, who's, who's watching it from afar and gets to help with the student athlete experience as a whole.
0: So, what's the biggest difference in the similarities between Air Force and Yale?
1: Uh, the well, student or cadet or cadet always comes first. And I I think that's a beautiful thing, uh, for me at least, because I didn't get into college athletics, uh, for to be the next Gene Smith at Ohio State. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't. I didn't come here. I, I didn't get into this industry thinking that I was going to be the next big name in college athletics. I came in because I'm passionate about what I do um, and I'm passionate about the student athlete experience. I'm passionate about raising funds and generating revenue to make sure that we have the best experience, to build the best buildings, to to give them the best equipment, the best technology um, and help make sure that they're taking the next great step in their life. Right. No matter what that looks like. And at Yale and Air Force the similarity is, is what I said before, is that it's not about, you know, the next four years of your life and having the best four years of your life. It's about setting them up for the next 40. And there, there's those similarities from the academic rigors of those institutions, the history, the tradition of them. Of course, Yale is a much, much older institution. Um, but from the day to day with the academics, um, and again, it's not something that I will ever understand because I never would have gotten to, into these schools myself, but um to watch it is is pretty incredible. These are some of the most determined student athletes you'll ever see. And not only what they're doing on an academic from an academic standpoint, to put division one athletics on top of it is pretty unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're they're working at all hours of the night. And uh just to make sure that they're they're passing their tests, they're getting good grades, they're getting ready for a great job after uh, after their 4 years or going into the military and to serve. Um but they're also refining their craft as athletes because they're passionate about it, they're sincere, and some of them want to become professionals. Um so it's I mean you see at Yale there's there's actually a lot of individual the uh, Foyer was the leading tackler for the last 2 years in the NFL with the Jaguars. I mean we have some talent But Mm -hmm. Foyer is also one of the smartest individuals you'll ever come across. And it's I mean, to me, it's uh, it's fascinating uh, to watch. And it continues to fuel my fire because I love being a part of an institution where the student comes first and the athlete second.
0: So let's talk about your current role now. What is the biggest challenge facing you and your team in the next 12 months? And what kind of strategies and mindset are required to face the challenges head on?
1: I would say the biggest challenge would have to be with Yale is that, you know, this is a place that has a deep, deep tradition of giving. And, um, it is no secret that there, you know, you have global leaders, um, throughout the years that really passionately give back. I think our biggest challenge is creating an approach from the annual side of things to help with the operating funds. It's not the capital campaigns, the capital projects. Uh, Those are things that sincerely interest a lot of individuals at Yale. But it's about giving on an annual basis and creating this annual fund that's a well-oiled machine and making sure that we're intentional and we're efficient when it comes to alumni engagement, Uh, because we do a lot. Um, And, you know, contrary to some who may believe uh, that Yale has all the money in the world, We still don't have, we we have 35 athletic programs, but we don't have a staff the size of a Rutgers or an Ohio State or a University of Texas. And we have to do, you know, we really have to punch above our weight here and do a lot more with less. And for me, that's where efficiency comes in. And the challenge is going to be making sure that we create a sustainable model that is also incredibly efficient to make sure that we're bringing in the funds on an annual basis, we're engaging our alumni at a high level uh, and making sure that we take care of everything necessary for our coaches um, and for our student athletes and our alumni Mm -hmm. so that everybody's proud to invest into this place, whether it's their blood, sweat and tears as an athlete or a coach or their funds as uh, from a philanthropy standpoint from an alumni. Um, And those things are going to be though that's going to continue to to be a challenge because I'm the new guy. I've been here for seven months. There's a lot of things that we can do here that can that can get us to that point. Um and not only that, but I think the challenge in college athletics in general is you're trying to keep good people. And it's not about it's not about the money as much as as it is the trying to figure out this isn't this isn't the old college athletics that we live in anymore, or the sport industry. This is the, since COVID, you have work from home. You have, you have some people, a lot of people have weekends off. They have remote work in general for their full-time jobs. um, And they can make a lot more in the corporate sector, which is a beautiful thing. And I respect anybody who does that. But in college athletics, you've, you've seen a plethora of individuals leave. Because they're like, it's it's not worth it. I want to spend more time with my family like I did during COVID. And I want to, um, you know, I want to make a little bit more money. And I want to live in a place that, that I would be happy with or be closer to my immediate family. And the challenge is going to be how do we keep these people here and keep them happy? And, you know, Mark Harlan, I, I just heard another podcast um that I listen to frequently. The athletic director at Utah said, that what they started to do there, and granted they have a lot more people than we do, but uh, what he's trying to do is when you work weekends, which we work most of them, is is Fridays, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, you have events, then either take Monday or Tuesday off or work remote those couple of days. Because you're already losing a weekend, let's give it back. Mm -hmm. And young people are not going to appreciate the grind as much because they're going to say, I have other opportunities. I want to live my life. And that's OK. Again, I respect that. But I can't I can't look at a staff member in the face who is coming in an entry level job who's 24 years old and say, this is how I've always had to do it. And you have to do this now, too. It's not it's it. it's not sustainable. So our challenge is it's not just my challenge. It's the college athletics industry. How do we make it so that We can take care of our own, give them a little bit more of a work-life balance, but still expect the same type of uh, output that we've had so we can sustain the success that we've had. That is going to be incredibly important. And not only that, we have an athletic director that's really good at hiring good coaches. We win a lot, and we're winning more now. So the other challenge is, how do we keep up with the needs of our coaches who are continuing Mm -hmm. to win championships or need to? And that all comes back to the annual fund, making sure that we take care of our own and and get our uh get our operation in the right place within the next six months um and really start taking care of business so that we can we can really provide our coaches our student athletes, and the administration with everything that they need so um those are those are some of the challenges that we have
0: yeah there's just a couple of challenges there. I want to ask you how you're creating <laughs> the environment to to, to keep people because we could probably could be, be here all day, but I want to ask, you talked about the next six months. I want to, Let's uh, cut that down to the next 90 days. What does the next 90 days look like for you at Yale? The beautiful thing
1: is, is that we're at a point where football's obviously long, long over. Now they're, you know, like programs are recruiting from the fall and all that stuff. But when it comes to, uh, we still have basketball. We have March Madness coming up. Our basketball programs have been pretty successful. We have Ivy Madness first, obviously, because we got to win out there. Um, but then we have baseball coming up, we have lacrosse. Lacrosse is uh they're constantly uh both programs are top twenty five in the country. Our men are normally top ten and fight for a national championship every single year. Our women's ice hockey program is number one in the country for the first time ever, I believe. Um, and they're gonna be going they're gonna be, you know, attacking another frozen four. And we have a lot going on from that side of things but when it comes to alumni events, they've really slowed down. So the next 90 days, I'm really excited because I could take a step back, go to a, uh, a handful. I can, I can at least be a uh, really support our student athletes a little bit more and go to more games, which will be really nice, but we're going to be, we're going to be thinking strategically. Um, so over the next 90 days, it's you know, we've been uh, myself, my assistant ad, have been putting together a lot of plans. Whether it's calendars, whether it's you know, developing metrics and 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 learning some patterns with the way that our individuals give, looking back on the past and how things were done, and then taking some of the things that I've done in other places and and try try to start implementing them here at Yale and it's going to be more so a planning process than it is actually implementing because our fiscal year starts July 1. So we're going to be doing a lot leading up to June. And then once July 1 hits, we'll be ready for this next year. And it should look more like a well-oiled machine. So there's a lot of simple things that we can fix very quickly, um, but it's going to take every bit of, you know, the next few months to make sure that we can take care of everything that we need so that, because at the end of the day, Josh, I talk about, making sure that our, our staff is taken care of, their well-being is looked after, um, and that they're getting a little bit of a work-life balance. If we don't create a more sustainable, efficient model with the way that we work, then you know I'm I'm not going to have a happy staff. And that's what motivates me because I want to make sure that we we need to automate some things here, and we can do that. But you use a lot more manpower when you try to do everything the hard way and the long way rather than take a little bit of time to plan out how you can automate things and make it easier on your staff moving forward so that you can focus on more high level projects. Right. So um, that's kind of what the next 90 days is going to look like for us. And then some.
0: Now you've touched on a whole ton of leaders that you've, you know, you've worked for, you worked with, you, you've been exposed to. Do you ever look for any mentorship and guidance from any of these leaders or do you, can you cherry pick any of their attributes?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, So I would say there's two ways to go about it in our industry with networking. It's either know everybody or know a few, right? And I've had – I consider myself one of the luckiest people in college athletics because I'm also – I'm not – I'm probably not a name, and I would assume that I'm not a name that's very well known with the places that I've been, um, but I know some unbelievable people, and I actually prefer it to be that way. I like to – um, I like to have great relationships with a few that I know genuinely want to care about my well-being and my growth as a leader and as an administrator. And I, you know, I could sit there and, and name names, but if I'm, if I'm looking at the people that I, I worked with and, and worked for, I've gotten some of the best advice I could ever imagine. And they also put me through experiences because they trusted me and, you know, words are great and telling you how to do something is awesome. But unless you have a leader that's willing to put you in a position um to either fail or succeed, it's a pass or fail moment, and they trust you to succeed and you have that experience, I am incredibly grateful for having those people. When I got to Little Rock, it was very much, you know, for the first six to 12 months, Chase Conk was like, you're young. You got a lot to learn. I'm going to help you every bit of the way. And then after that, he was like, this is your operation now. I need you to figure it out. And we've gotten to this point. And I'm trusting you with it. Please don't let me down. And I worked every single day to make sure that I didn't. And, um, and the advice that we would have on our late nights or our early mornings was invaluable to me. And to this day, he's one of my best friends and he's a great mentor and I could talk to him about anything. And then you have Nate Pine, who was, I I spent a lot more time observing Nate because it was a much bigger department. But anytime that I got the chance to spend time with him on a golf course or pop into his office, I soaked up every ounce of information he can give me. And then his old AD, Kevin Anderson, was an associate AD overseeing the football program at at Air Force. I took every moment that I could to spend with him and just pick his brain, hear his stories and learn a little bit from him. Um, And then there was a guy like Shondell Reed at Air Force who worked with my AD uh, here. uh, They worked together at Colgate uh, when he was with Vicky there. Um, unbelievable guy, so much knowledge. He was, at he was at power five as well, just like Nate and Kevin. And, uh, he was also at Colgate. So he understood so many different levels. Um, and he's so even keel with the way that he thinks. And it's pretty amazing to learn from these individuals. You have, uh, one of my favorite people is Jason Kroll, who I met while I was at Monmouth and he's now at New Jersey city university. He was the guy who told me, you know, when I was, uh, Going between interviews uh, before I got to Yale, he was the one who helped me think critically as to what's best, what's what's the next best step for my career. That's what we mm. talk about all the time. And he helps me, he doesn't, he doesn't provide the answer for me. He asks the questions to help me get there myself. And that's what I've always appreciated with Jason mm. because it helps me do that for others. Because you can't tell me what to do, right? I can't tell you what to do, but I can help you think and get to that point yourself. And to have people like that's pretty incredible. One of the most prolific fundraisers in college athletics, um, works at Purdue. He's somebody that I lean on every once in a while for, for advice. I was talking to another guy who's actually an alumni at Yale, works in Tennessee, um, who I've leaned on for advice as well. And they're a little bit younger in their careers and I, you know, I can, I can relate a little bit and they're only a few years apart from where I was. So they've helped me throughout my career get to a certain point because when you're, when you're younger in the industry, it's how do I take that next step as a young person and how do I grow to make sure that I'm continuing to develop trust and belief um, from somebody who's been in the industry for 20, 30 years? Um, and that's not easy to do. So it's having these mentors and this network is invaluable to me. I've just always mentioned to people that I'm very intentional with it, um, because when I talk to somebody, um, it's it's just as much as they're helping me as I'm trying to figure out how much it's actually going to help because I want to create a relationship. I want to, I want a mm. friend out of this. Um, but I want somebody who genuinely cares because everybody networks in college athletics. It's the first thing that you learn. Um, mm. But there's so many individuals that I've even talked to that I talked to once and I never hear from him again. But then I have some, I have uh, this one young man from, uh from Villanova who reached out to me who's in their annual fund and he's also the same guy that sends me a text on the holidays and sent me a Christmas card, you know, like oh, nice. it, it's the little things. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's some of that is it's a dying art and you don't necessarily know how to keep in touch with all these people when it's appropriate. They're very busy. Mm-hmm. I get that. But, you know, I, I I try to stay in touch with with people as much as humanly possible because they've invested so much of their time um, in me that i want to just make sure that i i genuinely care about how life's going you know so um it's been i I just try to tell uh anybody coming up through the industry that um you know the people that you surround yourself with are so incredibly important and they're not going to be right next door to you they're going to be across the country but anytime you get a if if you have somebody who you can call on a whim and say hey i'm having an issue with this Can you help me with it? And they pick up the phone and they say, yes, absolutely. Let's talk and they can help you or, you know, maybe not give you anything at all. Just just be somebody to listen to. It's pretty incredible that there's so many of those people in this industry, because, again, nobody got to where they were by themselves. And those Mm -hmm. that recognize that pay it forward. And I think it's so much more important that if anybody's if if anybody's looking for that opportunity, that. Um, and just to talk to somebody because you get messages on LinkedIn and and email all the time that you want to make sure that you give them that time because you asked for it once too, uh, and they deserve it just as much. And all they're trying to do is learn, you know? So, um, having those mentors, those people, I mean, like I can, um, I, I can name drop these people all day, but the, the ones that I talk about are, are the ones that have been around me and have stuck with me. Um, and there's, there's very few, but I, I thoroughly enjoy the conversations. I know that they care um, and I care about their careers as well, even though I can't help them as much because I don't have all the experience in the world. Um, I love these people. And, um, you know, I'm I'm just I'm a very lucky, very, very lucky administrator in person that I've gotten the chance to to spend time with them, to work with them or to just talk on the phone with them and, and pick their brain.
0: Yeah, what about the alumni you're dealing with at the We're having a chat before the podcast that you're dealing with some very high performing individuals. There's some very high performing individuals you may have not met yet, but do you take maybe the opportunity when you do engage with the alumni and just kind of pick their brain as well because they're high performing leaders just like yourself? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um you're when you're talking about Air Force grads, I mean these individuals are some of the, the the greatest leaders in the world in our military, and they have so much to give, you know, and some of that stuff just comes out naturally in conversation where you're sitting there and you're just you're you're just talking. You're asking about how they go about something. Um, and it just to me, it's such an exciting opportunity, especially at Yale, too, where you have global leaders. If you have the chance to sit down with them? You know, like they, they know who I am and they know what I do, right? They know, they, they know that I have a certain question to ask about a certain project. Um, but at the end of the day, when, when I'm taking them out to dinner, going out to lunch or talking to them on the phone, um, it's all about building relationships and trust. And I like to get to the point where they can provide advice or I talk to them about their career a little bit and see what they've learned so that it can come back to me. Because at the, you know, at the end of the day, when you're becoming a leader in anything, you want to become a CEO, and a lot of these individuals are CEOs. They've built companies, they've sold them, they've merged companies, they've um, they've taken over things and and built them into uh, an incredible success. And they didn't do that because they're just smart. They did that because they're good leaders and know how to go about it. And any any opportunity that I get to pull a little bit of information out of them. I'll take advantage of it any day of the week because I can't learn everything that I want to learn as a leader from a, from every college athletic administrator out there. If I want to be my own leader, I need to find side of college athletics that's going to work. For instance, we go back to how you manage your people and create a better work-life balance in an industry where it's normal to work 100 hours in a work week and seven days a week. Well, how does a startup uh, or how does a a tech mogul who graduated from Yale how did you turn your company from a place where people were killing themselves every single day Mm -hmm. for seven days a week and a hundred hours a week to, uh, to turning it into a a work from home remote situation where you're getting the same output or making it a four day work week. Those are the things that I want to know so that I can apply it to college athletics. And if that's, if that's possible to have that conversation, I will do that any day of the week because from a fundraising perspective, those conversations always come. I can also always send an email, but the opportunity to get five minutes with somebody who's that successful um, to pick their brain, uh, it's, it really is a perk of the job.
0: Is there a consistent way with how you pick in their brain and maybe yourself? Like, do they all start the day the same? Because I've always been told by my mentor, a lot of high performing leaders, you know, they exercise early in the morning. That's how they start their day. Like, is there a consistent theme with some of these leaders and even yourself?
1: I don't think I've gotten too deep into a lot of, uh, our alumni here. Um, I know at air force it's, it's, uh, it's very important to get up early and to to go for that run. And, you know, they'd come back for alumni weekends and their main thing was they would get up at 5.00 AM and go run, you know, go run a trail on the Academy. And, you know, after a night of a good time and, and getting ready for a football game in the tailgate that day. But when it comes to, yeah, I, I really do believe everybody's different. Um, I think a lot of them just have efficient processes um but I haven't gotten too deep into you know their their day to day right and what personally makes them successful but you know you bringing that up also makes it a good point that I should be asking those questions because it is a curiosity of mine right like mm-hmm. I have my own way of of going about things and it's changed throughout the years and uh but from a lot of these individuals you know, if I'm if I'm up in the morning and I'm emailing, I'm more often than not. But if it's before 7 a.m., I'm probably getting an answer back right away, and that tells you all you need to know because that's when they have their free time or they're spending their hour on email so that they can be, you know, more reactive during the day. Um, so I would I would bet you, Josh, that they have uh, a pretty strict regimen. A lot of these individuals, but
0: um, but everybody's different. Now I've got to ask last question because we've gone way over time, but who cares? We've been creating some great content. If you had to design your career today with a clean sheet of paper, what would you change? Oh, you know, I
1: was thinking about this question and to be honest with you, Josh, nothing. Um, I think for me, you know, every stop and every step of this, uh, this path that I've taken has been very intentional. There's been, it's up and ups and downs, it's highs and lows, but um, every single challenge and every success has been 100% worth it. And I, I wouldn't take any of it back because I've learned so much. The experience that I've gained from all of it, um, is more than I could have ever imagined. And, you know, I've been all over the place and I've gotten to move across the country with my, with my wife and, you know, see cultural differ- differences and go to the South, go to the mountains, back to the Northeast and, um, and work with some amazing people. And everybody has their challenges. Everybody has their story and everybody has has adversity. And for me, it's all part of it. And when you look back on it, I, I sit there and I say, yeah, could I have started in the power five and, and moved up and made money quicker? Sure. But to be honest with you, I probably would have been siloed siloed as a fundraiser and I wouldn't have had all the other things like you know, being in marketing and overseeing ticket sales and operations and being a sport administrator uh, over four sports and and doing all these other internal operations where you see so much more rather than going to a place where it's, you know, it's it's power five. It's sexy. Mm -hmm. It's fun. It's you know, there's a lot of help.
0: But when it comes to when it comes to what I've been able to do, I wouldn't take it back for the world. That's great. That's great to hear, Uh, Eric. As I said, we've gone well over time, but I've enjoyed every second of this. Really appreciate you joining me on High Performing Leaders in Sport. No, thank you so much, Josh. I've I've enjoyed the conversation, just like our last, and, and I
1: look forward to hearing it soon and, and continuing to follow this podcast.
0: Appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. The High Performing Leaders in Sport podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of lands on which we live and work, the Wadjuk people. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging.